This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. John Wellwood. John is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, teacher, and author. He trained in existential psychology and has also been a practicing student of Buddhism and Eastern contemplative psychologies for 40 years. John is the author of Journey of the Heart, Awakening the Heart, and Challenge of the Heart, and most recently, a book called Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships. With Sounds True, John has created an audio program called Conscious Relationships, where he shows the listener how to look at their lover not as a block to their individual fulfillment, but as the pathfinder to it. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, John and I spoke about the notion of the holding environment in early childhood and how the spiritual path is opening to awareness as the ultimate holding space. We also talked about how John understands the relationship between psychological work and spiritual work and his notion of spiritual bypassing. We also talked about committed relationships and the most common issue that couples present in couples therapy. Here's my very illuminating conversation with Dr. John Wellwood. John, your most recent book is called Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships. And the subtitle is Healing the Wound of the Heart. And I was very interested in this subtitle in particular, this idea of the wound of the heart versus wounds, plural. And, you know, I'm curious, do you see having now worked with so many different couples as a psychotherapist that there's some central wound? And if so, how would you describe that? Yeah, I think there is basically one wound. I mean, you could say all, it could even go more extreme. It's a little simplistic, but you could say there's only, all psychological wounds are one wound basically and that's the wound around love and being disconnected from love and that that is the ultimate wound you know so i have a friend who had a baby recently i'm hanging out with the baby a lot and it's just so clear that this little baby is a bundle of love you know sailed in from the universe you know and we start out that way just and so and we and everyone the thing is that People are already so wounded. Our parents and the people around us are already so wounded. In other words, cut off from the heart, cut off from their true nature, cut off from the capacity to really be in full conscious relationship with other beings. But it's, we're inevitably going to get wounded in that way. That we're not going to be seen, we're not going to be recognized, we're not going to be known in a full loving way. And that's the basic wound. So then what happens is then, when that happens, the, the child goes into shock, essentially, because um, the child doesn't know what's going on or doesn't know how to understand that or know what to do with it even. you know. So the child doesn't have the capacity to know what to do with it. Child, the child's nervous system is completely under, under, undeveloped and can't process anything like that So or underst- begin to understand it. So what we all do, very understandably, is we shut down. And we cut, and that shutdown cuts us off from our actually essential nature as love, as openness, as as awareness, and um, that is the basic wound. And then we wind up feeling disconnected and 
feeling sort of bad about ourselves, and then actually it goes further. In our culture, specifically, more so than the in, in certain indigenous cultures, we wind up feeling there's something wrong with us. We're not actually lovable in and of ourselves or who we are. And that's that's the further iteration of the wound. But the basic wound is the disconnection from our being. Can you help me understand that second step, you know, the feeling disconnected from love as a small infant? Okay, I was kind of with you there, but then the second thing, there must be something about me that's unlovable or terrible. Right. How do we make well, that it, move? How does that happen? Yeah. Well, for a child, you know, the child has no way to understand the lack of, or the diminished sense of responsiveness from the parents, because the parents have, of course, got their own problems and their own wounds and their own life to deal with, and they're doing their best for the most part. We're not trying to not trying to blame the parents. We're not doing that. I'm not doing that. Everyone's doing the best they can, but for the child, when the child is not met and known and fully connected with or allowed to be who they are, um, then it provides a kind of shock to the system. And and the child doesn't know how to, doesn't know what's going on. And the child needs the parent to be there for you. I mean, your survival depends on your parent, your caretaker. So the child actually, it's, it's easier and more sane for the child to actually see it's the, 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 the child can't, doesn't put the, put the onus on the parent, doesn't see that this is the parent's limitation. They can't do that. So eventually the child grows up thinking, it's my problem. I, I'm not being, I don't feel loved because I'm not lovable. It's the most, um, you know, it's the most obvious thing that the child could do. It's actually safer for the child to do that, to make themselves wrong in some sense, than to see the, the lack in the parent. Because then it's like, uh, I think one of those great, uh, Fairbairn, this great psychologist, said something to the effect that basically the child would rather see the parent as good and make themselves wrong than the other way around. It's much safer, it's much more uh, better, for you, better for your health, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm imagining right now that someone who's listening is a parent and says, you know, I don't want my small infant, my small child to suffer in the way you're describing, to go into shock and blame themselves. What can I do? Can we get this problem at the root for the next generation? Yeah, because there's lots of things you can do, but on the bottom line level, it's like, um, it's this way in relationship if you are not connected to your own nature as openness. You know, the nature of love, let's, let's go for the nature of what the nature of love is. The essence of love is openness. And, um, and out of that openness comes a certain kind of warmth. So the two aspects of, of love, you could say, are in childhood, or what's called, what Winnicott called the holding environment. The two essential aspects of the holding environment are for the child is contact, making con- making good contact. The con- child feels contacted and met emotionally and psychologically. Obviously, all, uh, also the physical needs are met, but that's, that's usually taken care of. Uh, the child feels met and contacted. This, that, that allows the child to relax and be. It's like when you feel loved, when you feel met, you feel seen. Something in us relaxes. It's like, oh. And as, a, and as human beings, we need, it's like Buber, Martin Buber talks about this. And he uses the word confirmation. And he, what he means is that human beings have the capacity to confirm each other, to help establish each other in our humanness, in our, in our human capacities, and, such as openness. So when you feel met and seen and loud, it's like then your openness can be. It's okay. It's not. It's not. It's not a source of pain and suffering. When you don't feel met, it is a source. Of the, then the, our basic openness becomes a source of the origin of our pain and, and suffering because and so then we shut down so we don't feel open and we don't have to suffer so much so if the parent can meet so what the parent can do then is actually do the best they can to meet see allow the, 
the being of the child to emerge and to be held and embraced. It doesn't mean every act. It doesn't mean the parent can't train the child and and scold the child as necessary um, about certain behaviors. But the child needs to be met and seen. So when the child relaxes, the child can then open. And the other aspect of the holding environment is very important. So the contact is the first aspect. The second aspect is space. So that if, in other words, if the parent was only making a lot of contact with the child and not giving the child a lot of any space, that would also be wounding. That would be also be hurtful. The child needs room to... Um, Winnicott calls going on being, and the, the child needs to be have room to just allow allow themselves to be and have space to be in. I think part of the problem with modern modern families is that parents keep their child constantly busy and occupied with activities, and especially now that we have all these technological gadgets, the child is completely activated and externally oriented toward these gadgets. But the child, to, the child's growth and the health of the brain and the body and the soul, you could say, would be that they have plenty of space in which to just come into themselves and to feel themselves and to feel their relationship to life. And, and so, that, so when the when the, the child has a, so other families, the child's given a lot of space and through ignorance or neglect doesn't get any contact. You've got to have both elements sort of balanced. The, the, the contact is there and the space is there. The space is allowing the child to be, giving them room to be themselves and supporting that. So that's what a parent can do. It's, and, and, but a parent will have a hard time doing that if their own wounding is up in front and center. That is, if they don't, they yeah. don't know how to... They, they're threatened themselves by having space. But by not having hey, their space filled with activity, if they're threatened by that, then they're not going to allow the child to have space. But I'm curious, even if a parent, let's say, was very connected internally, very open-hearted, able to relax deeply, do you think still that this core wound, what you call the wound of the heart, the central wound, still would exist in children that were raised in such a family? That's a good question. And I think I would say probably... Yes and no. Um, no in the sense that I, I, there are indigenous cultures that don't have people walking around thinking they're not lovable. So it's clear that when a child is, is, is raised with, with a kind of lot of contact and space, that they, they are much less wounded. But I think to the extent that we... Do, so that's, that's on the love side. On the, on the awareness side... Um, most children are not born or raised um, rec- being able to recognize their own nature as, as openness and and love. They don't, they're not able to recognize it. So, to some extent, we all grow up um, with some sense of disconnect from our being. You know, basically, the parents or the culture, especially we're talking about our culture now. The parents and the culture do not provide you generally a very good holding environment. The culture is not a holding environment. Again, in the indigenous culture of the spirit that was run, that was governed by spiritual wisdom and earth wisdom, then the, the culture could be more a better holding environment for the child. So the, the child is basically born with that sense of that basic sensitivity and vulnerability. Basically, that comes out of their openness, and then. Um, when it's not met or supported or allowed, then there's a basic disconnect from that openness. And I think that's just the child. Also, there's a certain element of turning away from what is painful and shutting down and saying no. Because another aspect of this that's actually interesting is that you could say all the, you know, when you look at our human beings and all the ways we, we act out our woundedness in this, in this, in this planet, the regression and violence and hatred and envy and all the rest. You know, what's at the root of that? What's what is the basic problem with human beings? Uh, you know, as a psychotherapist, I work with you know people's wounding a lot, including my own. <laughs> and you know, this this often turns up. It goes into the sixties and seventies. It comes in, it comes in stronger sometimes when people are fifty or sixty actually. 
all the stuff they haven't worked on comes up more strongly. And people go like, here I am, 60 years old, and I'm still working on my stuff from childhood. You know, what was going on? So basically, you know, a very simplistic, but, but I think somewhat accurate analysis of that is that we're born prematurely. In order for the the size of the human brain is rather large for compared to the body mass of the human body, compared to, for say, a horse. A horse has a very tiny brain in a very large body, so a colt can be born and get up on its legs fairly soon after it's born because it it's developed. It's born with a fairly developed brain that can already function at a high level, a fairly high level. Human being is born with a very underdeveloped brain. In order to get the brain through the birth canal, it has to be much smaller than compared to the body mass than a horse, for example. So it takes us a couple of years before we can get up on our feet. And what that means really is that we're underdeveloped as a child. Our nervous system is not able to handle and deal with all the experiences we're having, especially the painful ones. So we're not able to process our experience. We're not able to digest it fully. And it all kind of builds up, and it becomes what's often known as the shadow, all the things we weren't able to handle or deal with or face or, or even be able to experience as children, gets um, stored away, like you could say, and it gets held in the body and becomes our kind of personal karma in a certain way to deal with. It's our unfinished business. It's... Um, our undigested experience. And so the psychological work tries to work on helping you digest that which you haven't digested, but weren't able to digest when, you, when your nervous system wasn't able to cope. And the nervous system is, you know, it takes about 14 years to develop in a human being. Hmm. I didn't know because that. Because we're starting from such a low level of our underdevelopment compared to, say, in most animals. Now, you made this interesting comment here, people in their 50s and 60s and dealing with childhood issues and asking themselves this question, what? I mean, I'm still working out what happened to me in the first few years of life. But you're, I think, saying that that could actually be normal development, healthy development. I think it's healthy at some point in your life to to actually engage in a process of digesting that material that hasn't been seen or acknowledged or felt or understood. It's very healthy to be able to do that. If you have to, it doesn't happen to you. you know, what happens is that most people in their midlife, thirties and forties, um, have a lot of vital energy to expand on external achievement and busyness and activity. But as you get into the fifties and sixties, your vital force is waning, and um, and the external activities aren't able to fill. Uh, take this have the same role in your life, and so you start to feel that waning of the vital force, and it becomes a time then to actually grapple with who you are, what you are, what you're dealing with in your life, what you've been dealing with all your life that you haven't really faced and dealt with. So, I think it's a very healthy development, but I think people often take it as a f- f- failing, a failure of some kind. Well, as you said, we're used to thinking that there's something wrong with us, and some right. some well, reason to yeah. <laughs> I think that's the basic tragedy of being a human being is that we're, we live on this gorgeous planet, you know, that's like the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden is so beautiful on this planet, and so so rich in resources for all of us to live on and be healthy in. And I see it as the, the people walking around wounded and then may, may thinking there's something wrong with them leads to all this kind of crazy behavior that dominates the planet because people are trying to then compass so people are walking around with a sense of inner deficiency and then when you have a sense of inner deficiency that's kind of an unconscious sense of in, in subconscious sense of deficiency that's running you then as a, what we do is a comp, we can't try to compensate for that by trying to make ourselves good trying to make ourselves better trying to make ourselves uh, more secure more Try to make ourselves good, so people have all the kind of hyper motivation to own and create and uh, dominate and uh, plunder 
um, comes out of a kind of compensatory mechanism. So I call it the compensatory identity, and then there's a deficient underlying that is the deficient identity, the sense that there's something really wrong with me. But I've got to I try to make up for that by achieving or owning or sex or money or power, and those are ways that we try to compensate. And so it's tragic that, that, that we can't actually just relax and enjoy who we are. We actually have to be constantly trying to heal that sense of deficiency, but we do it in these very distorted ways. You know, there's so much I want to talk to you about. There's so much Thomas, here. Right? <laughs> See if I can get right to some of the main points. And yeah. one of them is, you know, you mentioned this holding environment, the ideal holding environment for a child, a young child to grow up in, one in which there's both contact and space. But you make this interesting, at least I want to clarify, make sure I'm understanding your work correctly, this interesting point that even as adults, we could relax into the holding environment of the cosmos, that there's a possibility, right. and so and what That's the connection right. is with our childhood. So I'd love for you to explain that. Explain which piece? What's possible as an adult in terms of relaxing into an already always given holding environment and how that could provide healing for us as adults, regardless of what our childhood was like? Well, that's basically the spiritual path. You know, that's what the spiritual path is. And uh, to actually um, explore and discover the way that we are held by the universe, or you could say by awareness. All our neurosis, all our psychological neurosis, our conditioned patterns of behavior and feeling are all actually held in awareness. And so shifting the, the focus from identification with the problem, uh, sense of identification with the deficiency, in this case, to awareness of the identification with deficiency. It's a big, it's a big step, actually, to do that. That's part of the healing, is actually to realize that awareness is the ultimate holding environment. Awareness is the ultimate healing agent. The awareness is the ultimate enzyme that digests, helps us digest the undigested experiences from the past. So that is, I think, very much the heart of the spiritual path. So I get the space component of the holding environment that awareness okay. provides. What's the contact part? Okay. Well, we could say the contact part is, is also prim- largely addressed through psychological work. I mean, it's also addressed in in spiritual traditions. They where you, for example, in, in, in tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, the, the, the whole way of working with emotions, where you actually make direct contact with the emotion from awareness, and you penetrate and you sort of absorb the thought and emotion back into awareness. So there's a kind of contact going on. It's not just a space element. Could you slow that down a little bit and maybe give me okay. an example and explain that? Um, yeah, let's say I'm angry. Um, now, this is a this is an advanced practice. This is not just someone, something someone can do off the street. But um, you feel the anger in your body, and you don't, and you separate the anger from any mental elaboration about it, any construction about it. This anger means X, Y, or Z. It means that this person's wrong, or I'm wrong, or the world is wrong. Or, situation's wrong, I've got to fix it, I've got to change it, why did they do this to me? All that kind of ideation, that mental ideation that kind of just tries tries a way of trying to interpret the emotion. So we have to separate that out and we start to see that that's just thought form, those are just stories in our mind. Those are just uh, mental constructions. So then that helps us to allow us to um, meet the anger as a pure experience without any mental framework or interpretation or point of view on it. That's very important to separate that out. And then um, we could actually meet the energy of the anger directly, which is just its just energy. Fear is just energy. Anger is just energy. Depression is just coagulated energy. It's basically chi or energy that's become... Um, fixated through through the um, you know the, the, the 
stories and interpretations we put on it. And we separate it out. We just meet the energy directly. It's just energy. And so um, we can actually uh, rest in that energy. We can let the mind rest in the, in the midst of the, that uh, energy without even labeling it anger, but actually just the pure experience that it, the pure energetic experience that it is. So that's a kind of a little schematic of how, how that might happen. But the other the other way to work, so that's the kind of what we could say maybe a spiritual way of working with emotion and uh, wounding. But a psychological way would be slightly different. It's actually more like meeting the experience directly in the same way, but letting that anger, um, I call the word I use is unpack. So unpack the anger, meet it, feel it, and acknowledge it and allow it. And then inquire into it. What is what? What what may what is this anger? What what am I feeling so angry about? And but not trying to figure it out with your mind, but actually staying right in touch, making this is where contact is very important. Staying in direct contact with the feeling and asking it questions, and the feeling can then start to reveal itself. What it's about, where it's stuck, where it's kind of glitched. Uh, what it needs in order to resolve. All those things come out of inquiring into it, unpacking it. So those, those elements can then be worked with as you start to unpack them. Well, you know, it's interesting, John, because as we're talking, you keep weaving together psychological approaches and we could say more, quote-unquote, spiritual approaches. And, you know, of course, your work, this is one of the things that you're most well-known for and so respected that you bring these two together. And I'm curious, is there a metaphor for you about how the psychological and the spiritual work together? Is it a braid that they fit inextricably into one, or how do you see it? Yeah, I see it as like absolute and relative in some way. I'm sure I have some metaphors I can't think of at the moment, but... Um, um, well, tell us what you mean by that, absolute and relative. Well, sort of like... Spirituality is working with who we ultimately are and, uh, and letting that be discovered and letting that permeate our lives. So it's the absolute, our absolute true nature, you know, our essential nature, which is ultimately the same in all of us. You know, It could be called Buddha nature or whatever we want to call it. But um, psychological work is more working with our relative nature. The, it's more working with the conditioned self. So the spiritual work is working with the unconditioned self, unconditioned nature. And I think the problem with spirituality, uh, spiritual work is, is not include psychological work, then it often can be in the a sense of a spiritual bypass where people are un, uh, unfolding their ultimate nature, but they're not actually dealing with their relative unresolved psychological issues. And that's really problematic in our culture. On the other hand, you could get totally just totally fixated on your conditioned nature and working with that forever because it's like there's always more to unpack and digest and but it, and it's much more beneficial to actually do the psychological work for, for what I do is from a spiritual perspective the psychological work in the service of spiritual development that's how, kind of the way I work so I see them as working hand in hand. One is working with our relative issues, especially relative here is an interesting word because we're, it's related to relationship. Yeah. But sometimes I say relative truth is really relational truth. It's about how we are in relationship. Um, you know, a lot of those, for example, the non-dual teachings, basically the, in the non-dual teachings there's no self and there's no other. There's just being. Um and there's no focus on the self and other split. It's like an overcoming or transcendence of the self-other split. But in, in real relative life, in real, which is for most of us relationalized, because our life unfolds in relationship to other people from beginning to end, you know, and we actually need human, other human beings to guide us, confirm us, as, as Buber talks about, uh, to lead us, to show us the way. Even when we're dying, sometimes we need help to die. So we're completely, on the one hand, the human beings are completely dependent on other human beings in that way. 
even though our ultimate nature is, you could say, non-dependent. And so it's like, it's like, I think the relationship between the psychological and spiritual realm, in some sense, is a complete paradox because we're working on different levels of who we are, which are oh, sometimes seem completely opposite and completely almost incompatible. And, but so the paradox is that we can actually hold both truths, even though they seem to be completely opposite. The work to our ultimate nature is completely unconditionally free from the very beginning, and our relative nature is very bound and conditioned, and is bound up in relationships and the problems in human relationship, or the opportunities in relationship. Um, so we're in the sense that we're, we're perfect on the one hand from the ultimate point of view, and we're completely messed up from the relative point of view. And they're both true. And I think if we can hold it that way, then it's actually very healthy, because the human being is a walking paradox. We're a mix of spirit, spirit and matter, you could say, heaven and earth, the conditioned, the unconditioned, form and emptiness, formless. We're, we're the bringing together of these two completely different levels of reality, form and formless. And so our life is a tremendous opportunity to actually work with that paradox and unfold it. And so it actually becomes very beautiful in a certain way, although it's, there are certain phases in our, my develop, our development where we feel like we're working maybe at opposite, you know, opposite ends and going in different directions. But I think they really, ultimately, they work very well together. Now, John, I'm completely with you in terms of the value of psychological work and the value of spiritual work. We need them both. But yeah. I'm curious, you said, you made a comment that I would like to ask you about, which is you said that your focus is psychological work seen in the service of spiritual work. What do you mean by that? Is spiritual work at some kind of preeminence here? Yeah, I would give it in the sense that it's ultimately it's but not just about in other words, it's not just about working out your issues and digesting your material from the past. That would be the kind of traditional use of psychotherapy and so forth, is just to sort of heal yourself, heal your past in a certain way. The past that lives, still lives in you, in your body, which is good and important to do. And I, but I think it adds another dimension to see to actually hold that work in the service of uh, we're doing this work of unpacking the self, this relative self and healing these wounds in the service of being complete, able to completely open up to life and to, to the universe, to the whole of reality and to actually cultivate our ultimate openness. So, Because we lose our, we lose our openness in childhood in relationship. That's the key. That's the really important point here in a way is it's through relationship that we lose our openness, lose contact with our openness, and have to shut down. And so the psychological work is a relational activity. It's a dialogical activity. It happens in, through relationship to another person. And so actually, that's so we can learn to become open to another person, to the, let's say, to your therapist, to the person who's working with you. And then you start to learn to be open to yourself through that process. But that, but then that's that's good. That's one level. But the next level is, is in the service of spiritual development would be that this is in the service of opening up completely to all situations and all aspects of life, which is, I think, the ultimate nature of the spiritual journey is to completely open more and more and more and more, and finally open to death. And then who knows what happens after death? We have to keep opening in some sense beyond that. I don't know. But that's mm-hmm. the that's the propulsion mm-hmm. of the spiritual path. Now, here's a question I really want to hear what you have to say about, which is, as you're talking, I'm in touch with how grateful I am for all of the psychological work that I've done over the last mm-hmm. couple decades, you know, working yeah. very closely with a talented therapist, etc. And yet what I know is when I talk to many people here, both within the company at Sounds True and also other people I know, their response is, well, this is all very rarefied, Tammy. You know, you can afford this kind of psychotherapy. What about the rest of us? How are we going to get the kind of relational healing that John's describing? Is there any way this is going to become really accessible and democratized, if you will? That's a good question. Um, yes, um, you know, um, my, my psychological teacher mentor, Eugene Jenlin, actually worked on this a very long time ago in the 60s. 
and developed a program called Changes, where people just came together and uh, worked with each other using a particular method, a focusing method that he developed. And there was no hierarchy. There was no. And there was. It was free. And um, so I think there are ways that when people can recognize the importance of this kind of work, that people can come together and create that kind of communal. I mean, every community should have a little com- community center where people at least are are meeting and gathering and, and working together in small groups or being, you know, also in pairs, just taking turns. Of course, there has to be some little bit of training in, in that. But uh, that would be great. I think that's really important. I, mean, I think what the problem is today is so much is this, this everyone's so isolated. And there isn't community. and Everyone's just kind of completely absorbed in that technological gadgetry and in an isolated sort of way. And I think democratizing psychological work is a great idea. In fact, also bringing it into spiritual communities. I think I did a training recently where uh, with a with a Tibetan teacher, where we explored opening the had a retreat, and we explored opening up a day for people to do some psychological work. I think that's very important too. And it doesn't have to be mystified. I think there, of course, in in, a, in extreme psychopathologies, there's a lot of training and knowledge that needs to happen. But on ordinary level of sort of um, normal neurosis, um, people can help each other without having to have a huge amount of expertise, professional expertise. Yeah, they just have some basic training tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. You know, we're, we're, how do we how do we do, how do we create a, um, healing on a widespread scale and make that part of our culture? You know, traditional cultures had other ways of doing that. Shamanistic ritual and so forth. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You know, I want to um, circle back for a moment to this topic of relationships. You mentioned that what a key point it is to understand that this early wounding happened in relationship and then is healed through our relationships. And in the program that you recorded with Sounds True on conscious relationships, and I'm curious if you think the kind of healing that we're talking about here of this core wound, now this may seem like a strange question, but I want to ask it, can happen in open relationships, non-monogamous relationships, or if you think there's some kind of commitment or crucible that's required for this kind of deep healing to occur? And does that include monogamy and what your view is after working with so many couples? Right. Well, the general thing would be that, um, I'll, just to, I'll answer your question in a minute, but before that, just to say the general point might be that a lot of the relational healing doesn't have to be done in a psychotherapy situation. A lot of it can be done in, in relationship to another person you're intimate with, because if, if you can hold it that way, um, of course, you may need some help from a couple's, doing couples work, but it's very powerful to, uh, a relationship is the most powerful way to bring up your wounds from the past, actually. It brings them all up, <laughs> inevitably. There's no way around it, because it, it, it just brings up the places where one's shut down, and all, all one's projections about other people, and all one's um, self-deficiency ideas and all the rest. They all come up in relationships. So relationship is a wonderful uh, vehicle for working on one's 
uh, psychological and unconscious material. Um, coming now to your question, I personally I do feel just I, I'm not going to make an absolute statement about this because I I can't ultimately do that. But just from my experience, it's, I have found that the difficulty with um, things like polyamory or non-monogamous relationships is that they bring up in spades that wounding and often um, re-wound people a lot. I don't know if it has to be that way, but it's, it's just, just I, I know for myself, if I, if I, I just say from my own experience, that if I were going to pursue that kind of relationship, I know I would have to go through a lot of agony. I guess people do that, and they can, maybe they come out the other side, but I think a lot of people get really wounded along the way, especially if if you're, if you're um, I have a sense of having a fear of abandonment. Usually one of the big problems in, in childhood is, is when that contact hasn't been present, uh, loving contact hasn't been a part of your life as a child. There's some level of trauma around abandonment um, at different levels of trauma and shock around abandonment. So if there's no commitment, no container, no committed container, it's like a, I sometimes think about the committed relationship as an alchemical vessel. It's like a, you seal you seal the vessel, and then you do the work within the vessel. So I can't say absolutely that that's always true for all people in all times, because so, I, I've had people write me letters and say, "So you seem to have a bias toward monogamy, but you know I've been in a." open relationship for most of my life and it's really been fantastic and it's really grown a lot from it so I, I, I you know whole, I'll honor that possibility I think that's possible because people do tell me that that, is, that does work for them but I think it's also extremely challenging so is it possible to say that there is certain requirements for a conscious relationship using that term conscious relationship what would you say the members of a couple need to be willing to commit to, to say, oh, this is a conscious relationship, in your view? I think basically we're willing to commit to, uh, uh, first of all, I think the, the basis of it is, is the couple comes together and they, they develop a vision of what they're doing together. We're not just together for sex or making ourselves, each other feel secure or um, taking care of each other. I mean, those are elements, but cultivating a larger vision of what what is the purpose of this relationship, what is the ultimate, the spiritual nature, spiritual purpose of this relationship. So they have some kind of vision of um, being able to use use the difficulties in the relationship, and relationship always comes with a lot of difficulties, a lot of challenges. If If it's a strong relationship, the stronger it is, the more... The more we feel a deep connection with someone, the more it's also going to bring up all our, our obstacles and op- obstacles to love. So it, it goes always hand in hand that way. So um, we need a vision and a, and a some kind of commitment to work through all that material. And then we're going to stay present and we're going to work with it. We're going to open to it. We're going to face it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to express it. And we're going to, it's all going to be in the service of love and openness. And so I think that vision is very important. And that's probably the most important thing there is. It's like an intention, forming an intention. Intention is so, such an important part of life. Mm-hmm. And then I think we need some tools to be able to communicate. I think people need, and then there's some base, there are basic methods around of how to do basic couple communication, some very simple ways of being able to hear and listen and an important word here is to be attuned to the other person. And I think that attunement is a very important aspect of what we didn't get often in childhood. Sometimes, for example, I know that my mother loved me. She was a very loving person. And she also was not at all attuned to me, which is very interesting. <laughs> so attunement is beyond even love in a certain way. It's a, it's a capacity to tune in and be sensitive and perceptive to what's going on in yourself and in another person. So I'm I'm attuned to my partner. I'm concerned for them. I want to see what's going on for them. I I ask good questions. I listen. I'm interested. I 
I want to know where they're at. I want to know what's going on for them. I want them to share their process with me, so I so I can I can get to know them better, feel more connected with them, and also know where I how I feel in relationship to them. And it helps me. Once I know, once I'm attuned to where someone else is, I can also be attuned to myself and share where I am and so forth. And then that kind of that process of sharing where we're at with each other is very, very much part of the path. And also to be able to really listen to another person, which is a kind of listening I consider as a sacred activity. It's a capacity of surrendering and just hearing, letting in. Receiving. It's part of openness. Again, it's another expression of openness. Learning to really listen. And learning to really speak your own truth. I mean, those are just such powerful things. Now, you know, because you've worked with so many couples, I'm, you know, I'm interested to sort of get behind the door, if you will, of the therapist's office. And I'm curious, have you seen a pattern of where couples get stuck? Like, oh, this is, here we go, this is the place, this is, you know, like, are there a a few core patterns? Like, oh, uh uh-huh, this is it. Yeah, number one is blame. Number one, absolutely, is blame. And, you know, blame comes, you know, comes comes out of that wound again, because it's like we were, we experienced a tremendous pain and suffering through our relationship with with people and our caretakers in childhood. And so there's a whole level of, um, often unexpressed anger, unexpressed uh, frustration. And it often comes out in a relationship as seeing the other as, what I call it in my book, uh, Perfect Love, the bad other. So it's the bad other is the per- is that person who doesn't love me properly, who doesn't see me, who doesn't actually get who I am. That's the bad other. And so the bad other is... In, we weren't able to experience that with our parents because we needed to see them as good because they were our caretakers and we depended on them for everything. So it was, it was a part of our survival and security to see our parents as good and make ourselves wrong. But the, the flip side of that, the shadow of that, is that we actually have this under, underground grievance and resentment against other, against other period, against other people. I go into that in the book a lot about where does something like road rage come from? You know, it's like this complete projection someone cuts you off in an intersection and suddenly people are blowing up and getting out of their car on the L.A. freeways and shooting each other. Like, what is going on? (laughs) And, you know, it's coming from because there's this projection of the bad others that comes up so quickly when someone doesn't treat you right. Or they're they're just, maybe they're distracted. Maybe there's a waitress in the restaurant who's a little, having a bad hair day and, you know, and they're not being attuned to you as a customer and you sort of like, get all incensed and outraged. I mean, it's a ridiculous from a reality point of view, but we understand psychologically, we're saying, we understand that actually we're projecting the bad other onto other people. And so that's, that's and then that in, in relationships, that creates a sense of blame. I'm, I'm always blaming the, the part, my partner for how I don't feel good in, my, in the relationship. So the relationship is... Um, and a relationship always goes through ups and downs, and it's, it's, like, it's like a wave. And so part of the wave of relationship, a part of the wave of life is going down. And in the trough of that wave, when the, at the bottom of the wave, you know, you might feel that the relationship is boring, you're not that connected anymore, nothing's happening, um, you don't feel passionate. And usually it's like, it's because my partner is not doing something right. They're not providing the, the stimulus for me to feel passionate, for me to feel excited, for me to feel alive. So there's this tendency to always look at the other as the problem, which, which is what's getting acted out on the world at large. It's always like looking for some group to make wrong and then forming a political base out of making this, this, this ethnic group or whatever wrong. And that's, that's the basic problem. That's the most fundamental problem I see over and over again in relationships. Uh, and so sometimes, with, you know, sometimes it's easy in couples to work because people are fairly open and flexible to help them see that and to help them reorient to, instead of making the other wrong, saying, opening up where I am feeling vulnerable, where I am feeling, if I'm not feeling alive in the relationship, what's going on inside me? What am I touching in myself? Or maybe I'm touching my own deadness. Maybe I'm touching my own numbness. Maybe I'm touching my own uh, 
sense of deficiency uh, and make a relationship with that, and then that starts to open things up again. But some couples are so dedicated to the blame game. I mean, some people really thrive on the blame game. I don't know, for some reason, they're, that's their, their structure. And um, some, some couples are very hard to wean off of that. It's very hard to. You talk in your book, Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships, about these grievances, you call them, and how we, yeah. we, we hold on to grievances and how right. hard it is for some people to 100% let go of a grievance, perhaps something that could be quite old. You shared in the book about your own process of working through your grievances with your mother. And I was curious about that in that these things that seem so old, and why is it so hard for us to let go of them? And I'm, I'm curious what you discovered for yourself in your own life about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing I think which I discovered, which I think is fairly fairly true for many people, is um, that my whole sense of self, or ego self, the ego self being the defensive self, self is, is created in childhood for the purpose of survival, and defense and protection is just 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 a really humbling discovery that my whole sense of self, the ego self, was built was structured around grievance. Actually, at the core of it was actually grievance. So the ego forms around the grievance, and um, that's kind of how that's very humbling to see that. Oh wow, it's really built into the whole character structure. Now it isn't for everybody, but for many people it is. And, um, you know, starting to, you know, of course, you, I've gone through a process of forgiving my parents and understanding them and understanding what was, what was where they were wounded, where they were cut off, why why they could have had no other choice. And ultimately, you come back to people don't have any choice because they're driven by unconscious patterns, and so ultimately, it's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's just that we're all working on this kind of huge task of becoming human, becoming conscious in a, in a body, in the form of this body, which has all these feelings and all these thoughts and <laughs> trying to function in the same way is, is, a, is a huge challenge. So uh, those are some of the things. I mean, I, um, What do you think best allowed you to drop or let go of this grievance posture? Well, in just practical terms, it was when my mother started to die, actually. Um, and so and suddenly, I, something in me just kind of like went, oh, she's dying. Oh, oh I care about her. Oh, I just want to be here for her. Um, and um, it just sort of heightened my sensitivity to the pain she was in. And um, I just started to see all the beautiful qualities in her, actually. And I went back and dug out a bunch of old photographs of her in her 20s and 30s and made a whole scrapbook of them. And it's just kind of like, you know, something about, like, when we realize someone's going to die, you know, it's like a, you get really, things get very real and genuine. That was what would happen for me. So it was a very healing process, actually, for her her death and after her death for me. Well, you know, John, just to ask a kind of final question here that summarizes in some ways our conversation, which is, as I'm listening to you and I'm hearing you describe this core wound in us and how many of us respond with these grievances of all kinds and how hard it is to let go of them and how long it takes in our life and the whole process. I kind of feel like I have a deep respect for the map you're laying out and it makes sense to me. And I'm sort of left with, wow, it takes like our whole lifetime to work out this core wound. And this is so much harder and more complicated than I ever thought it would be when I was a young person. I guess my question is, you know, how do you relate to the depth, complexity, what seems sort of (laughs) time-consuming, heart-consuming process of 
healing the core wound of the heart. Right. Well, on the one hand, I, I have to admit, just to, to be honest, that I've been many times in my life where I've thrown up my hands and said, this is, this is ridiculous, this is good, it's endless. And um, it's, uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's said in um, some spiritual traditions that the path is the goal, the journey itself is the goal. So it's not like we're going, I think the part of the problem is we think that we somehow have to cure everything and fix everything and become these marvelously open enlightened human beings on and and then that's what our goal is and then the problem with that is then we are trying to reach that goal and that goal becomes separated from the process itself and so one of the really important learnings along the way is the path is the the journey is the goal the journey is is what we're doing we can't we can't um proceed without without in any other way other than working on our karmic unconscious conditioned material and and leveraging that as a way to become more open and that's there's no that's what we're doing here on this planet it's like um we're we're actually you know human beings are a marvelous experiment of the universe trying to bring together these you know spirit and matter these completely opposite realms and um, we're the experiment, and the, our life is this experiment, and and the journey itself is to somehow somehow really learning to. And I, this has been challenging for me, I, I have to say. Learning to just appreciate the journey, the process, and uh, learn to actually hold all of my experience in love. Basically, it sort of ultimately comes down to. I'll hold the whole human ex- range, the whole human experience in love, loving kindness, loving understanding, loving compassion, loving caring, loving openness, and um, that's the challenge. And I think it's, so. It's not the thing isn't like we have to get everything fixed so we get to this goal of perfection, but to bring love into all the areas that are so wounded and imperfect and and uh, and human. The human is so sensitive and so vulnerable, actually, and so open in that way, and so and such, capable of such deep feeling. So the the more we actually are, are aware and open to our own uh, conditioning and pain and so forth, the more the more our openness and love actually develops. It's the way we develop our love. You know, love actually starts to become. Not just this. Uh, in the book, I call it absolute love. Absolute love is our our nature as love, the love that naturally radiates from the heart or from the universe that's already always there, and that's great. But bringing it through the relative form, the relative human being, the relative pain, the relative wounding, the relative ego structure, bringing love into all those dark corners—that's the real path of human being, being a human being. And that's that's why it's a beautiful path. And once we can get away from the idea of it, somehow the whole purpose is just getting happy and fixing everything, which will actually just retard the journey quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a very important point, and I'm glad that we're ending on it as something to really highlight. I mean, I think in our culture especially, it seems there's such an emphasis on the idea of some happy outcome, even when you, as soon as you use the, the word healing, healing the wound of the heart, like there's going to be some time. Right. Yeah. Right. Healing, it ultimately is, means healing your relationship with it. So it's no longer something that you reject or judge or avoid. That's the that's the real healing. Not the, not either. I think all of these wounds are with us for in the form of a sensitivity. We're always going to feel sensitive certain things in our lives that's not going to go away but we can heal our relationship to it so our sense of ultimately it's not about getting happy in the sense of having happiness be the content of our experience all the time but I think it's more like having a sense of well-being that comes from being able to relate to the happy experiences and relate to the unhappy experiences equally relate be able to hold everything in awareness and love and 
And then that creates a sense of well-being that goes beyond the conventional happiness. I've been speaking with John Wellwood. He has recorded with Sounds True a program called Conscious Relationships, in which we examine the unconscious issues that come between us and the relationship that our spirit yearns for. John, thank you for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from our conversation. Thank you. Great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.